This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hello. Was that the beginning of the show? (laughs) Okay, hello. Welcome back to the show. Yeah. Okay, so last episode, we left off sort of teasing a question. It's been a problematic question uh, and a common question relating to essentially what is the role, what's the validity, what is the point uh, from the perspective of the New Testament authors. What is the function of the tabernacle system, the Levitical system, the temple, the priests, all of that? Essentially, the center point of, of temple Judaism. What is the function of all of that after Jesus? Yeah, and I think that's this is uh, an important question, and we have to be so careful because a lot of people have asked this type of question and then done really bad things with their resulting answer, specifically coming from like a Protestant perspective. So be- before we get going, Tim... Tell me some of the the bad ways that this has been interpreted. The new New Testament version of the, what's the point of the temple has been interpreted to lead to you know bad things. I kind of just said that 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 has happened, but can you maybe give us a quick overview of some of the bad ways this has been taken? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question because what we're going to see is we'll need some to to be careful to see sort of differences between the bad and the good or the bad and the better, maybe. Um, and they may feel pretty similar at first, but I think they're quite different. So um, this idea is essentially the the hotspot of supersessionism, the idea that uh, Christianity has sort of moved on from Judaism, has separated and taken the place of Judaism. And now God is on board with Christianity and God is no longer on board with Judaism, which of course means God is on the team of Christians and not on the team of Jews, which then of course, most of church history, there's been conflict between Jews and Christians, uh, which is even attested within the new Testament. Um, specifically Jesus believing Jews and non Jesus believing or non Jesus, uh, loyal Jews, um, there's debate, there's hostility, there's infighting, there's all of that. And so if, if your take is that God has left the team of Israel and is now the captain of your team, uh, then, then that can lead to some pretty bad, I'd say, postures in any conflict. But then, this is, this is the gasoline on the fire in, in my view, is that the other part of this uh, sort of supersessionistic interpretation is that the law and the temple and sacrifice and everything uh, to do with Jesus and the cross and, and all of it, it's all about morality, right? right? And that's part of this, I've poked at this, like it's all about morality. And therefore I think what happens is this is the, the supersession, the, the breaking point is assumed to be like a moral a moral breaking and i think christian moral supremacy is a is a title and a name tag given to what i think is just the default attitude of christians at least in in protestant yeah, christianity yeah. and that is the the idea that they have the moral high ground right 
And so where this is specifically, I think, really been driven from interpretations around the temple system and all that is the idea that that Israel was legalistic, right? This is the Martin Luther view, that the law was essentially moralism, legalism. It was actually sinful, how many Calvinists would say it, to try to uphold the law, right? Now, I've also heard, too, that that the law was there to show us we couldn't keep the law and that we needed Jesus. And that it's fine to, that they were like trying to follow that. It wasn't so much like legalism, but this is maybe like a, a take on Luther, like progressing past Luther just a little bit, but still in that reformed world. Um, but that it, yeah, it was to show us, it was to point to like, see, you can't keep this. These are God's perfect rules and no one could keep them. So obviously this isn't going to work. This was a failed failed system from the beginning because humans are are flawed and failed and it was pointing to we need Jesus. But not from I think the the standpoint that that you're probably going to come at that from which is like a this chemical, you know, business that we've been talking about, but just from like yeah, the moral side of things like we can't keep the law because we're imperfect and that's what the right. point of the law was to show that it's it's not going to work that way. We need something different. Well, and why why have why have Protestants come up with that idea? I'd argue it's because they have to hold or feel like they have to hold and a view of the inerrancy of scripture, mainly the Hebrew Bible, and <laughs> supersessionism at the same time. So they have to be able to say, "Hey, the whole Hebrew Bible is based on the Levitical system, the priestly system, the temple system, and these laws." that are all a part of it. And yet the whole point of the New Testament is that we're supposed to move on from that and it would be wrong to stick with it, right? So the only way to, in my view, bring those two ideas into any sort of cohesion, because they're, they're contradicting <laughs> ideas, right? God gave Israel this system and then participating in the system is wrong, right? The only way to, to make sense of those two claims is to claim that the reason God gave Israel the system was to essentially reveal Calvinism, right? It was to reveal <laughs> Protestant theology. That would have been nice for Calvinists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took 1,500 years, but that's essentially, I think, the argument. If you can't tell from us on the show, we're not big fans of Calvinism. Yeah. On the surface, I think if we, most of us in this conversation are listening to this conversation, all very quickly, red flags are going up of like, that is one of the least sympathetic and most crass ways of thinking about a multi-thousand year history of a people. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that God would use them as an experiment so that we could learn a theological doctrine. Uh, so there's that problem. But then there's a secondary problem of like, not only is this a whole people, with the history and lives that were actually lived and babies that were born and kids that grew up, right? Real people living real lives that we can't just dismiss as some sort of divine science project. But also, this was the people of God doing what God was doing in the world, according to these texts, for, for a thousand years. So the idea that the whole Levitical system was flawed or failed or wrong or misguided in any way, I would just argue is just incompatible with any part of the scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, 
whatever. Hmm. I think the other reason, besides sort of trying to bolster Protestant thinking, the other reason um, some of these unfortunate takes have happened is this: the point of this whole series, which is that we have had no stinking clue what Leviticus and the Levitical system was about in the first place, right? Right. And so how we make sense of, you know, how the early church might have changed their thinking or or moved beyond the Levitical system or how they how a Jew would have thought about how to continue being a Jew now that a new thing had happened like Jesus and the world for instance had been cleansed um, we haven't even begin to been able to begin having that conversation because we haven't even had the right paradigms to think of all our paradigms for many of us have been mo- the moral moral failure right and and then moral forgiveness and so essentially it's a, to to sort of summarize i think the most toxic response to this question or approach to the whole conversation over the course of church history has been essentially to answer the question of like the the levitical system is no longer valid because christians have the have the better way and and you need to get on their team without actually understanding like why there would be any practical fundamental changes in thinking about the world or cleansing or purity or holiness or anything. It's more just like Christianity is the right way. Judaism is the wrong way. And then the, again, the fuel added on top of that fire is, is what you hear from Christian preachers all the time is for anybody who is remaining Jewish still in the, the system of Judaism, what any version of that, that that's actually somehow like a sin against God for, for being Jewish, right? And you can see the clear, very short line between that and anti-Semitism and Nazi Germany and the, and the whole deal, right? Like, Okay, that's what I was going to ask is because, so with, with, let's say, Nazi Germany, that one's been fascinating to me because I think, seems like I've heard and I've read that some of this type of stuff is what led to Holocaust and the kind of momentum that built against Jewish people and Judaism was from viewing this incorrectly. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Well, I'm I'm certainly no historian, but I mean, just think about one other element of it. It's like, um, if we don't know what killing animals and smearing their blood on objects ever meant to people, and it just feels like this crazy, crude, primitive concept, and you would like to essentially draw a nice strong line and call your group of people the the civilized modern people and call another group of people like primitive savages essentially then essentially this has just been ammunition for that cuz we can say hey look these these people involved in this not just legalistic, but also this like primitive idea of sacrifice, right? This primitive idea um, of a of a belief that God, you know, had wanted anything to do with sacrifice or all this. And you know, we've even talked through in early conversations and understanding Leviticus that like that is the that is just the stereotypical view of all sacrifice, no matter which culture we're talking about, right? Um, but it's just been another point of Christian supremacy of like, oh yeah, Christians moved on from that blood and gore, like that weird, that weird like seancey stuff, right? Christians moved on from that um, as a sense of like 
Christians just sort of had this moral awakening and development, which isn't at all, (laughs) right? What we've been learning. I I haven't heard that. No, I I haven't heard. This doesn't, this isn't resonating because I haven't heard that because Jesus is sort of the ultimate, you know, weird, strange sacrifice that was going along with the, the ancient system of sacrifice in the, uh, with the Israelite people. So that's how I've heard it explained is, is not, distancing themselves from the sacrifice in the old testament but that jesus was that ultimate sacrifice and so we don't need to do it anymore because you know this was the perfect sacrifice and so not saying the system wasn't necessary at the time but that now we have the ultimate one so i'm struggling to see how that i guess led to the holocaust i haven't heard like the primitive side of things before um, but more so that like they didn't have the truth they didn't they weren't doing it the right way they were mistaken on what the advances that God had made in the story with Jesus. And yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying, have you ever at least felt, cause I certainly have, and I've, I spent most of my adult church life in like hip, somewhat progressive, <laughs> you know, they're like evangelical churches, but like progressive in the evangelical spectrum of things. Um, and there was, there was sort of always this background sense that, um, that Christianity was like a, a new development and that uh, a sacrificial system with actual sacrifices was a kind of archaic thing, even if we didn't use language of like crude or grotesque. It was like that it was old and outdated and something the world needed to move from, right? So it was another, and, and you look around, and you're like, well, yeah, most people don't actually sacrifice animals anymore right and most of uh most of the world today and so it's just another like supremacy point it was like kind of the feeling of like yeah christianity was the pioneer and everybody else just needed to get to get with it and like keep keep up on the same page i felt that kind of stuff all the time did you that's interesting no i I, no i didn't i didn't feel that Hmm. i don't think i felt that at all like i in my experience like that the story of the Israelite people was, that was always used in explaining, and and their sacrificial system was always used in explaining Jesus. It wasn't something to like, you know, gloss over, you know, speed over to get to Jesus. Jesus was always explained. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that makes me so uncomfortable about the whole way that Jesus is explained now is it's all about, you have to basically be covered in this blood so God can't see you. And, you know, he only sees Jesus and, and the stories that were told in the old Testament, like using all of those to explain Jesus. I guess for me, what I'm saying is that it was the, the old Testament law was always explained as like, that was the point. If you get hung up on still needing to do sacrifice, then you're not experiencing and understanding what Jesus did and what that whole law and sacrifice system was pointing to and trying to get us to like I feel like that was pretty well explained in the just reformed world that that I was a part of yeah so let's let's get into what I th- what I think uh, the the New Testament authors who again were Jews who lived in accordance with the Levitical system spent their entire lives in a culture that was entirely formed by this system and spent years with Jesus and were still, like we talked about in the Peter example, loyal to this system. Uh, Jesus had not taught them to to walk away from the temple or to, you know, uh, stop being kosher, any of those things. 
Um, and so what, what people like that, when they learn the Peter lesson, which is that the whole world has been made clean, what do they do? And how do they think about their entire lives, their, the culture that they come from and are still a part of? How do they think about uh, the religion, the society, the economics that are all intertwined with all of this? How do they think about the temple itself? And then how do they think about what this new reality is that they are uh, believing in? Um, and we'll see this kind of get us into... Uh, the conversation we've been wanting to get to on the Holy Spirit and how central uh, the Spirit was. So, Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Um, I don't know if we should read it or not, but Hebrews 10 is essentially answering this question. Okay, so you listening, if if you want, if you're at home, if you're not driving, pause the, (laughs) the podcast. And go <laughs> go read Hebrews 10, uh, at least the first 18 verses. Um, but uh, even better if you read it all. The reason I'm just going to read it here is if we're still coming from the same framework, we will read these verses and, and think the sa- they are making the case for the same framework, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, so what I want to do is try to lay out a, a different framework and re-articulate what the author of Hebrews, I think, is actually saying just because this is how it works, right? It's like when we've been taught to think a certain way for so long and then based basing those on these English verses and, you know, Bible verses get stuck in our heads or parts of them do or whatever. It's very hard to to read them any differently. Yeah, we've talked about it before. It's the you know, the movie, The Usual Suspects. You watch it and then you you hear the twist at the end and then you want to rewatch it again or The Sixth Sense or, you know, any of these movies. That's sort of, I feel like that's what's going on, right? So you always, you'll lay something out and then say, okay, now go back and reread Romans or reread Hebrews or reread Leviticus or something like that. And it's kind of like one of those, oh, yeah, that totally, you could you could hear that two different ways. Yep. Okay, so let me just try to, so I think the basic point in this chapter, but of the overall letter to the Hebrews and I think every New Testament writer would be in agreement, although depending on what stage of their life, because they all had to work, work this out. The basic idea is that offerings, sacrifice, blood is no longer necessary. I think that's the basic point. Now, before I get into some subsidiary points, Nate, can, can we just talk through like, why would that be the case? And I use the word necessary intentionally to say there's this isn't a critique 
It's not saying there was something wrong with sacrifices in the first place. Um, that would make no sense right? <laughs> for, for like anybody, like Peter, for example, to say that, right? Yeah. He'd spend his whole life and his life with Jesus participating in this stuff. Okay, so, but why would it not be necessary? Yeah, okay, so if the way the world is, which is what you're making a case that the writers of the Old Testament thought, if the way the world is, is that God and humans have to be separated because God's like a nuclear reactor. And if God comes in contact with humans, there's going to be death and badness is going to happen unintentionally. It's not like God is this evil monster. It's, it's just the nature of a nuclear reactor. Okay. So if that's the way it is, and then if blood is that insulator that allows these two realms, I guess, to, interact with each other and, and coexist in, in in moments. And then if Jesus' blood was spread out onto the whole world in, in whichever way, we've there's episodes in the, the last few episodes here where we've we've touched on that, but if that happened and now Jesus' blood is kind of this like cosmic insulation for, for all people, then that would mean that that having that individual kind of sacrifice of and, and and getting that blood and spreading it that kind of a thing um as was done in the sacrificial system nothing wrong with it it's just not technically necessary if this other thing has has happened right exactly so i think the argument is that according to the author that the levitical system was a perpetual thing Says, says this in a couple places, meaning that it was never capable of reaching its own climax, it, it, reaching its own completion, either individually or corporately. Um, that's not a critique. That just wasn't what it, wasn't what it was going to do, right? So the idea, remember, to make a way for God to be in the world again with humanity, God had to go through a whole bunch of steps to be with a small segment of humanity. It's the basic premise. And containing God's self within the tabernacle, all of the safety protocols and the chemical processes that the priests and those close to God would go through were all a way of allowing God to be in some small way present with some small portion of humanity. But there was never really a laid out plan for how that would expand to the whole world unless essentially the whole world came to be a part of that project, came to be Israel and join Israel. Okay, so that's the that's the first premise of, of the uh, argument. Second, and we've touched on this, haven't gotten into it. Um, I've, I've talked about how there's change that's happened over the course of the texts and the various generations of Jewish people thinking about these ideas. And so we've tried to lay out, you know, what are the basic, you know, underpinnings in this whole ideology that God is a dangerous substance and there are compatibility issues and things need to be covered up and holiness, all that. Right. But, but also there's development and change in thinking along the way. One of them that we haven't touched on is this, uh, set of phrases that gets used quite a bit in the Hebrew Bible. And then the author of Hebrews picks it up here, which is, you're probably familiar with the line from the prophets that 
God doesn't actually just desire sacrifice, but righteousness and justice, which uh, that's a big interpretive <laughs> uh, hole that people can fall into if what you, uh, you're claiming some sort of inerrancy and then the way you're going to interpret that is that actually God had never commanded those things, right? Versus like hyperbole of like, don't do the, don't do the, you know, the motions that you know you have to do to protect for your, protect yourself and then be a complete jerk, right? Like, but, but anyway, in here in Hebrews, what the author does is references that, which is right. One of the, uh, even for us today, a, a commonly understood uh, idea in, present in multiple texts in the Hebrew Bible And essentially what I think he's doing is pointing out that, look, there's precedent in Israel's history and in Israel's scriptures for people to have to revise the way they've understood or focused on the Levitical system, if that makes sense. Not to say, hey, it was all wrong in the first place, like God never wanted this and now we're doing something totally new, but like as as times are changing, as the situations have changed, people have to reconsider what their relationship is with the temple with the Levitical system, with priests, with the cult. I think he's bringing that up to say like, hey, we're in one of those moments and we Jews, those who believe that Jesus has made the whole world clean, have to th- have to think about what to do now. <laughs> like this is an important conversation we have to have. Okay, I think that's the second part of the argument. And then the third piece is I think the author is claiming that Jesus accomplished the climax of the entire Levitical system. And and did essentially everything that the Levitical system was hoping to do and did it, as we've talked about, on a universal scale. And and so there's even this line in there, which again, this is another uh, web of, of confusion. Uh, in verse 14, where he says, for by one sacrifice, he, referring to Jesus, uh, the NIV uses the language of has made perfect uh, forever those who are being made holy. Um, the, the word here, interestingly, and I think tellingly, uh, is, is related to the word to, to finish or complete. Um, you've probably heard discussions on like, uh, in Hebrew Bible, does, is perfection really like the same as completion, like that kind of thing? Um, Word-wise, this is the same word that the Gospel of John has Jesus say when he says, Tetelestai, it is finished on the cross. And I think what it's what it's connecting, this is the language you're probably familiar with, Nate, of like, there's one sacrifice once for all time, right? The idea is that, that Jesus has now done a sacrifice, which by being the scapegoat, by blood covering, all of the things we've looked at, was so thoroughly successful to cleanse the entire world, even those who don't have any idea what's going on, in a way that animals and the Levitical system was never going to do. Not because the system was was failing in any way, it just wasn't going to be able to do that. Jesus essentially did what the Levitical system was doing and did more than the Levitical system was doing. And what that means... <laughs> is that nobody needs to be cleansed anymore. And as we see, like the whole Pentecost story, right? Why cleansing? We've, we've talked about, we've probably asked that question a dozen times. Why cleansing? For holiness. Why holiness? To be close to God. 
Why be close to God? Because that was how things were supposed to be. Those, this is the great reunion project. The end goal is to be with God again. For, for God to be in the world, for humans to rule the world with God in this partnership. Okay? So if the whole point of these uh, sacrifices, the animals using their blood, the oil, the priests, all of that, was to enable some small segment of people to be close to God by, by cleansing and the whole world has now been cleansed, then if you believe that, I'm not saying everybody should believe that, but if you believe that, then wouldn't it just make basic common sense to go, okay, <laughs> then there's no need to spend, you know, $100 or whatever it would cost, probably more like 1000 to give up one of our animals so that we can use the fluids of the animal to cleanse us so that we can go to the temple, Right? Like that thing, which this system was trying to accomplish, has already been accomplished. That's the, that is the basic Christian claim. Like I said, I think if you were to take one story to try to understand how people interpreted the Jesus gospel, right. it's that story of Peter learning the lesson that the world had been made clean, even, even Gentiles in the world. So if you believe that, then, then the, there's a common sense, aside from all the earlier garbage we we talked about that it, that the idea that sacrifices are no longer necessary can can make a basic sense okay that feels all well and good what do we do with that though because i feel like if i try to take that message out into the world there's 12 episodes of podcasts I need to get someone to listen to so that I wouldn't sound essentially anti-Semitic, right? Mm-hmm. So is there like a little bit of a, a gateway version of this that we can take into the world without so much explanation that needs to happen? Um, or is it better to just kind of stay out of, just try to try to be as benign as possible and not say stupid stuff. <laughs> what am I trying to say here? Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people just need to shut up for a while, right? Yeah. Like that's, it's okay. I think it's okay to say that. But, okay, so, so, so again, like I know we can get um, intimidated or like even fatigued by how complicated it can all feel, right? When we like recon- try to reconstruct or rethink something. And this can feel like, oh, we have to go through 20 podcasts to even talk about it. But, okay, again, so if, if I'm arguing that the basic idea and the, the premise that this author is wrestling through with his readers, right? This is the reason he's writing the letters. They're all having a conversation because they have all at least wrestled with believing in the idea that the whole world has been made clean. And then the part we need to get to, that because of that, God is now openly coming into the world. Right, not just in a in a building, not in a tabernacle, in a whole bunch of people, even people that weren't a part of Israel. They were all scattered all around the world. That God is coming into the world. If you believe that that was happening, a you could and they did share ninety nine percent of the rest of their beliefs with with fellow Jews, right? They shared a whole common world, common religion, common culture, common society, all of that. And some believed that was true and some didn't believe that was true. So first you could see how like that is such a bold and brash claim that like 
picking which side of that dividing line, like it'd be sort of hard to gloss over that disagreement, right? If you're if you're a Jew who has some some agreement with the basic set of premises that the world needs to be cleansed and that people can't just walk up and to be in relationship with God and that God is trying to reunite with humanity through Israel. Like if you believe in that basic set of premises, whether or not all of the important steps have been accomplished is a pretty important decision, right? Like a pretty important uh, ideological point. Right. And everybody's praxis, what people actually do behaviorally is going to go in very opposing directions based on that, right? So, for example, like, if you believe that not only you were clean, and again, this isn't morally clean, you you were essentially, like, ritually, cult, cultically clean from, from Jesus' life and death, from contact with Christ, then would you really want to go spend your money to cleanse yourself at the temple? Like, why, right? You basically feel like you... You don't need to, okay? That doesn't mean you're going to feel like anybody who doesn't believe that they are clean because they haven't either heard the gospel or believed that that's even a possible premise, right? You're not going to look down on them for doing the thing that you just spent the last 40 years doing, right? Going to the temple, participating in, in cleansing rites. But at the same time, you see like the evangelistic thing, and you and I have been pretty dang harsh on <laughs> on evangelism as you and I have both experienced it, done it, and known it. But you could also see how, like, that wouldn't be something you could not talk about with your neighbors, right? Like, if you believed it, it's going to come up, right? And and part, the other part of this we'll see is that, like, again, why why the cleansing? The cleansing was for, for presence, for reunification, reunion, and what, what people were believing or claiming, at least according to these texts, um, was that they were personally reuniting with God on the scale that like only Moses and a few rare figures in, in at least in the, the scriptural uh, testimony had ever experienced. People were believing that God was actually living inside of them. Okay. <laughs> And that that could happen to you and you and you and your friends and your neighbors and your kids and the guy that lives down the street, right? Like that, that was that was the <laughs> the belief. And part of what I think we need to understand is that that was such a like that was such a a huge climactic idea and claim that it is actually why the New Testament multiple times associates that moment this sort of onset uh when the the death resurrection and then the coming of the spirit weeks later at pentecost that set of events it overlaps them with with all of the old testament biblical language of the end of the world so the whole idea of like there was an eclipse when jesus died and there were earthquakes right, right? like which a lot of us are like, oh, that doesn't sound really realistic. The point of that is to overlap Jesus and the moment that Jesus' blood pours out over the ground with this imagery of the day of the Lord when God returns to the world and essentially a whole new generation of life begins on earth. 
Okay. The claim is that it's that cosmic. The day of the Lord has begun. And it's overlapped, for example, with like the eighth day. You have seven days, six days of work, then you rest on the seventh day. And then there's supposed to be, according to the imagery of Genesis, this life in which humanity and God live and rule together. And the claim is that Jesus rises in a new garden on the eighth day. Like So, so the belief is that something so cosmic has happened that their whole religious foundation was pointing to that the, the climax has occurred. Another one, I think we've touched on this before, um, is, remember we pointed out that some of the awkward language in Genesis, where the whole rib thing came from, yeah. is specifically because the, the author is using construction language to talk about how God made Eve from Adam. And the, the reason it's, it's been translated as rib is the word is actually side, like a wall. And the, the word for like create Eve from Adam is actually build. So essentially God constructs Eve like a building out of Adam. The point is, the author redactor of the first chapters of Genesis, the redactor likely of the entire Hebrew Bible, always was looking forward to and trying to point toward the ultimate climax being when God would live not in a building but within human bodies. So you can, you can just see like the reason I'm setting this up is like if you believe that that climax of everything your ancestors had been sort of pointing to, everything your religious system had been pointing to, what the what the Levitical system was actually trying to get at, and not, and I don't mean that like the Levitical system was always a facade, right? Like the Levitical system was a front <laughs> to get us to see past it, but I mean like it's the same thing and more that the Levitical system was doing. This is the ultimate version. It's it, it, it's the climax. The that's the it is finished. Like this this the completion language. The ideas that. Everything that this was working toward has occurred, has happened. And so for one, like my, my main point here is to say like, you, you got to understand how, um, how big a claim that is, right? Right, right. So it's like to come back to the example we've been using for the last many episodes as we've been talking about this, the nuclear reactor. You know, I've painted that picture before of all of these guests 10, 15 guests about to enter into the nuclear reactor. They're zipping up their hazmat suits. They're going to go take a look at this at this thing, but they have to put their suits on first. Otherwise, they can't go into the presence of the reactor. It'd be like, that's how you've been doing things for you know thousands of years. And then you get the news that like, hey, there's this new hazmat suit that is going to be zipped up around the whole planet around all people <laughs> like this hazmat suit. We figured it out technology, whatever to zip this up around everyone. So we don't need to do this anymore. You can, you can put a hazmat suit on. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you want to do that, that's, that's fine. Do that. If that's if that ritual helps you or, you know, whatever, do it. But I'm, I want to go and then spread this news of this hazmat suit that has that can zip up around everyone because, you know, and that would be, you know, very exciting if this is something you've been doing a lot and you've been, you've been a part of this for a long time. That would be a a very exciting thing. Yeah. I think maybe to play, uh, to play with the same analogy 
and try to draw attention to even another element at play here. Um, and this is, the Gospels are teasing this all throughout. Um, it, it'd be as if your neighbor, your friend, is getting dressed up in the hazmat suit to go to the reactor for the day. This is just a cool thing people do. <laughs> just go, go hang out the reactor. <laughs> right. And you believe, like a, like a madman, that not only does he not need a hazmat suit and you don't need a hazmat suit because it's like you're saying, essentially either, you know, in your way of describing it, the whole world has been covered with a hazmat suit or to just say like, there's no danger anymore, be uh, another way. But, but then also that you fundamentally do not believe that the nuclear reactor is, is in the power plant anymore that you actually believe that the nuclear reactor is in your body and you know your neighbor is standing right next to you and is perfectly fine before he's put on his hazmat suit, hmm. right? So you're feeling in your, your core belief either you're crazy or your neighbor is, is obviously just missing a massive change of plan, <laughs> like a massive change in the circumstances, right? And putting on the hazmat suit, in your view, would just be a waste of time, right? Again, not wrong, completely sensible, completely logical if he didn't have the updated information. So the reason I point that out is, like, this is the whole reason Jesus is framed as welcoming the destruction of the temple. And the the reason human bodies are presented as, as temples. And the, the point is, again, it's the Pentecost thing. It's the spirit. The, if you believed that God is already here and it, God is not in the building anymore, it wasn't just Jesus. Part of the element going on in these conversations and debates in the Gospels is fundamentally a question which is an essentially Jewish question, which is, is God even in the temple? Right? That is a question that, that Jewish texts and basically every Jew would have been wondering or, at le- or they would have had an answer to it. right? But it's what the whole book of Ezekiel is hinting at. It's like when God... The idea that God abandoned Israel's temple the first time. The whole point of going to the temple, participating in the in the sacrifices to be close is the belief that God is there, that that's where God is, right? So some of what we're seeing in these debates and fights that are framed in the gospel, it's playing on the irony, right, that you as a reader have the insider information that God is actually living in Jesus's body. Again, if you believe that, right? That's the that's the idea. That's what's being framed as a science experiment in which God is living in, in Jesus's body, not in the temple. So, I mean, just put yourself for, I, I know people won't like this language, but put yourself in Jesus's shoes for a second, okay? In that scenario where you have this insider information and your fellow peers are doing... What is the, what they're supposed to be doing, what they're told is the good thing to do, right? Participating in the temple system. But you know that it all is somewhat meaningless, right? Because Jesus is right there as, as the temporary tabernacle of God. And those people are fine, right? They're not dying. <laughs> there isn't the, the atomic bomb isn't going off. And in fact, like we said, holiness is winning out in a compatible way. And people are being healed and liberated and all that. 
And yet Jesus never condemns the temple or condemns people going to temple. Like I pointed out, when he heals the lepers, he sends them to the temple. But but I think in the background, it's just this like, depending on what vantage point you're coming from, where you think God is, because all of the Levitical system was about being close to God, not about appeasing God's wrath, that's like kind of the inside joke sort of thing, but but not really a joke, like pretty pretty dead serious, right? Like, so the claim wasn't just part one, that God had cleansed the whole world. It was part two, that God had now come to the world in this radical, open, universal way with a whole bunch of people, right? As the book of Acts says, like another thousand and another thousand, right? The idea is just people everywhere. God is just here everywhere, not contained uh, within a set of boxes, and people aren't exploding. Actually, what's happening is the return of God to the world in a in a in a successful way because the preparations have been have been made. So this, the second part is like, you know, first part is you don't need to be cleansed anymore. You don't need you don't need blood. You don't need uh, the sacrifice. But second part is God's already here. So the whole premise of having to go meet God in one limited space or the premise of it all having to prepare yourself to, um, to be, you know, close to God, like, but still separated by three or four different barriers and doorways, right? If you believed that your neighbor, the guy getting ready in the hazmat suit, was already clean and that there was an open invitation for God to come live with that person right here, right now, Again, you could just see where this evangelistic zeal would have just naturally come from, right? No one is like giving evangelism sermons in the early church <laughs> to try to like whip people up and, and send them out, right? But you could also see how, how the claim is a, is a big, bold claim and, and in some ways is an irrational claim. Because what the claim is, is saying that everything you've ever hoped for as a, as a good scripture-fluent Jew has happened, and yet you see no physical evidence of it. That, that is the claim. <laughs> Just to, to stop you there and, and back up a little bit, I love when you said, you said it in passing, but the idea was about being close, not appeasing God's wrath. You just threw out that, that line. But I mean, that feels like that's everything that we're talking about here with this, uh, you know, anyone who would listen to this show and be like, no, I don't, you know, they're missing it. They're missing the wrath of God peace. That's what they're going to be frustrated about is that we're not, <laughs> we're not focused on that. I mean, this is the divide I feel like. And this is really what I think with the new information you're really presenting here, the, the, what do we do with it? Which is what I'm always trying to get to is that it's, it's the focusing on the being close, not the appeasing God's wrath. And I was thinking about this, you know, a lot of the ways I taught about Jesus and, and what the, the point of, of Jesus was and the ways I heard it taught was about, it's, the, it's, it's a, God doesn't look on you. God looks on Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So when, if you accept Jesus, which is all you got to do, it's a simple thing you got to accept. God is not is no longer looking on Tim the sinner. God's looking on Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? God looks down and sees Jesus, not you. Which psychologists have done, you know, studies into like that. That's pretty. That's pretty damaging. It's a pretty damaging place to start 
in a relationship. That makes me think of our friend Brandon's uh, post on Facebook that he had last week, I thought, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, I kind of want to read it. Just summarize it because I didn't understand it by the way he said it. So summarize it. I think that was the brilliant piece is that a lot of people didn't understand what he was doing. But what Brandon did was he talked about, hey, I have this friend who just entered into a relationship and it seems kind of weird, seems kind of off to me because the the person that he entered into a relationship with is saying, you're broken, something's wrong with you. And the only way to fix that is to like not focus on yourself and just focus on me. He says, it seems, it seems kind of, uh, you know, emotionally oppressive. It seems kind of manipulative. What advice would you give me to this friend? And most people didn't pick up on what he was doing, I don't think. Um, which was essentially explaining how Jesus is presented to most, in most uh, reformed and evangelical, I'd say more so evangelical um, church experiences. Um, but so everyone's response was like, oh, that sounds really horrible. <laughs> you know, tell them to get out, like all yeah, this stuff. Get out of the relationship. Yeah, get out as fast as you can. Um, people's initial um, gut reaction was that sounds really damaging, uh, really controlling not a great place to start a relationship from, which is what anyone in their right mind would say about a situation like that when we're talking about people. But for some reason, when we then present that about God, you know, it's quote unquote good. It's it's a good thing. And so anyways, um, but yeah, that's what, that's how Jesus was always presented. It's like, God's not looking on you. He's looking on Jesus, yeah. right? So that's, that's loosely connected with Brandon's post. But, um, and this, what's so exciting to me about this focus being on being close versus appeasing God's wrath is that, that idea doesn't even make sense in this in this realm of being close. It's like, okay, God looks down and he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. It's like, what does that have to do with being close to God? Though? You know what I'm saying? Like, that doesn't even... It's the opposite. doesn't even yeah. make sense. It is. It really is the opposite. I do believe that Reformed people always believed a portion of this, right? Because when you hear teaching on, like, the veil being torn and what the purpose of that was, it's so you can have a, you know, a personal relationship with God through Jesus, Right. Like that was, that's the whole purpose of this veil being torn. So they got a little bit of that, like focus on closeness. Right. But then this whole piece of appeasing God's wrath is added in and not being able to look on you. God has to look on Jesus. So anyways, that's just fascinating to me, but I got kind of excited when you laid out that, like being close versus appeasing God's wrath. Cause I think that's really feels like the, the center of some of this. Yeah. And I think there's an irony, uh, that, uh, I want to. I want to get to. I think the next episode will be um, that has also fueled some of this, which is okay. Being close to God, what does that mean? You know, like, like really, like, what does it mean? <laughs> and you know, I've tried to um, even in this conversation, I've tried to be literal um, and like awkwardly literal to to sort of remind us that like the essential claim is that God is living in human beings in the form of a spirit, right? And the reason I've tried to do that is because I think so many of us have like spent most of our, our Christian lives after the, you know, the immediate, after the original honeymoon period of everything's fun and exciting and we're glad to be in a new club we spent so much of our lives like kind of wondering if that's real because there seems to be such a massive incongruence between that claim and what I actually experience when I'm walking around, going to the bathroom, whatever, and day-to-day life. 
<laughs> that's the, you, you didn't even list anything it wasn't like going to the bathroom you know washing dishes it was just going to the bathroom etc <laughs> yeah it's all the case study you need uh no i mean so where we'll have to pick up next time but what i've been trying to tease is just part of understanding this is understanding what the levitical system was ever for another part is understanding based on that how monumental the belief and the idea was, the essential claim of Christianity, that the world had been made clean through Jesus, and Jesus was the onset of a, of a thing where God could actually live in the world within human beings. So that when Jesus says, I have to leave so that I can send the Spirit to be with you, we'll get into this idea potentially of, there's this whole theme going on of the, the Spirit has to be uh, able to be divvied up amongst many. There's like a, a, a mathematics of the spirit <laughs> embedded in the gospels, which I found really interesting. Hmm. But the whole point is like Jesus, uh, if you heard the wholeness, um, it's it's a Greek word, sort of awkward English translations, um, and scholars have debated it over, but uh, usually translated as like the wholeness of God or the fullness of God, the fullness of deity. You remember reading that line, like within Jesus was the fullness of deity. Yep. The point is 100% of God was in Jesus and Jesus had to leave so that that 100% could then get diluted and split up amongst the entire world. That is, that is the idea. It's like an inheritance. <laughs> well, inheritance language actually gets used all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah or it's, you know, uh, if we were wanted to, go back to chemistry and use like a chemical thing, just imagine like, you know, a gallon of black ink, right? And that blank, black ink, uh, whole gallon is in Jesus, but you could take that gallon of black ink and turn, you know, a whole ocean uh, black, um, something like that, right? Like it's, it's a potent substance that can mix out into uh, a large swath of, of the world. But so the claim is that that's happening, that God is back in the world with humanity. It's happening right now and it's happening in the bodies of the people who are writing these letters and in the churches and having the conversations, right? And in our hypothetical of the Christian guy with the, the non-Christian Jewish neighbor, right? Mm. That claim we just have to understand is massively huge. It's claiming that essentially everything that Jews and Judaism itself had been counting on and hoping for, the day of the Lord, the return of God, all of that was in effect happening, but in a way that at the same time people were being murdered and killed and they were suffering and they were dying and they were still sick and there was a massive incongruence. It's not just for us. It was there then it was embedded in these texts too. And the same thing that many of us struggle with is like, okay, I get the idea, but like, can God, can you give me a sign? Like, would you answer a prayer? Can you, like, make me know this is all real, right? That isn't just us. <laughs> that was there, too. And so, anyway, that, I think that's the, f the first part of this is to to avoid some of the worst, most toxic, most anti-Semitic pitfalls in terms of how to think about the Levitical system. We have to understand how, how massive the expectation was around cleansing and the, and the return of God to the world. But then I think there's this other pastoral side of me for, for Christians who have experienced something uh, like I have experienced, which is a whole lot of self-doubt 
and feeling like you're not a true Christian because you're not displaying signs of it or wondering whether you're like truly saved, right? And the whole thing of like <laughs> trying to be baptized a hundred times and pray the prayer a thousand times and all that sort of thing. So much of it is I think we haven't been honest with how disappointing in many ways that great expectation is and has been. And I was actually sort of excited in a weird way to discover that embedded within Paul's writing, within Peter's writing in the New Testament, within the epistles, is a reckoning with the disappointment of the Spirit. Um, and I know that's it's interesting language, um, but it's something that I, that I want to sort of walk through and wrestle with. Yeah. Basically, there's this massively high expectation, this huge moment of anticipation that makes it, like I was saying, so that no one could could not be evangelizing, right? You just, you literally thought the world was starting anew. Things were, were so big. And then after a month and a year and a decade and a generation, and not much has actually changed, then these claims that God is living in your body and your neighbor's body and all that, they people start to think about them a little differently and word things a little differently and all that. And I think understanding that we're not alone in that, um, disorientation and letdown, yeah. <laughs> the diso uh, the incongruence and the disappointment of the incongruence, um, I think is something uh, worth talking about. That's a great tease. That, and that's why it's so exciting when someone comes along and is claiming basically the spirit as this magic trick. Um, that's why I think it's so enticing. It's because it's like, okay, that wasn't exciting, but this is this thing you're presenting is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I'm excited to get to that. Hey, everyone who's been listening, thank you so much for listening along wherever you have been listening, in the bathroom or, or wherever. <laughs> um, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're excited to have you along on this journey. You can find out more about the show, more about us, get in contact with us, submit a question, all that kind of stuff at almostheretical.com. And a big thanks to all the patrons that support this show and help us keep making it. You are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. All right, we will catch you next time. And Nate, can I just add, this applies to every show we've ever done and ever will do, but since so much of our conversation was trying to address anti-Semitism and talking about this other of Judaism and Jewish people, I just want to say like, if in this conversation, like we fundamentally believe that we all have to take responsibility for our theology and the way we, we talk about theology and God and all that, and that applies to us. So if you're ever listening to this show and something we say strikes you wrong, hurts you, is offensive, and you have some critique for us, please uh, don't feel shy to uh, email us, get a hold of us. Uh, we are trying to learn and be humble and, and learn in front of you as we go. Um, some of that means we're testing uh, theology, testing conversations. So uh, if, please feel free um, to get in touch with us. And for those of you listening, please, however you do have these conversations, be open to correction and, uh, and cautious and humble. Thanks, friends.